Good day, beautiful podcast family. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you are doing amazing, and I'm sending my prayers and well wishes to you, your family, your friends, and everybody you love. We have an absolutely outstanding episode of the show for you today. We have Wonia Tebow on, and we are talking about thriving in nature, profound transformations through wilderness living. Uh, Wonia is an absolute badass. She is the winner of the Alone series, so if you watch that and you see what she's able to do in the wilderness by herself it is absolutely incredible and mind-blowing and in this episode we we talk a lot about a variety of topics and ideas so we talk about the importance of connecting with nature some of the challenges with modern society how we can thrive in harmony with nature integrating outdoor skills into our lives we talk about the wilderness experiences uh, challenges you'll face out there how we can empower people through these types of skills and spirituality by connecting in nature, the importance of small farms and gardens, the importance of gratitude. Uh, we go into mindset, childhood, spirituality. We, we cover a lot of different topics in this episode, and I really think it's a phenomenal episode that uh, you're going to love. And if you do, please share it far and wide. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes and just do anything you can to spread the word for the show. Um, for those of you guys who want to become a member, just go to mattbelair.com. You can sign up for the membership and you can get access to exclusive content content you can do so for free or by donation um if you want it for free just hit me up matt at zenathlete.com and if you want to support the show uh you can pick a donation amount what else is there oh the best way to support the show is to do three kind acts wherever you are in the world that's the absolute best way to support this program so let's get into today's episode but before we do let's come into a state of peace and coherence wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with joy, peace, contentment, faith, courage, enthusiasm, inspiration, and get ready to enjoy this incredible episode with Wonia Tebow. Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is a wilderness survival expert and the first ever female winner of the History Channel Survival Show Alone. She is the author of Never Alone, A Solo Arctic Survival Journey. Welcome to the show, Wonia Tebow. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Matt. I am so excited to have you on the show. Uh, you are an absolute badass, as we were talking about in the beginning. I actually saw Alone 6 when I was getting into trying to learn more survival skills and what you've done is incredible. So I don't know if people um, have seen the show, but they should go check it out. And I haven't seen the new season where you actually won. Um, but I'm excited to dive into so many relevant topics. Um, at the beginning, let's just start there because we talked about uh, being a survivalist versus uh, a survival uh, expert. So can you just talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel like a lot of people want to look at going into the wilderness as necessarily a survival experience every time. And I really consider myself more of a more of a wilderness living enthusiast, not a survivalist, because I feel like survival is a real fear based approach. It goes with the idea that especially survivalism and survivalist, the idea that the natural world is out to get us and that we have to, you know, grit our way through it and tough it out and duke it out with nature which is exactly counter to my philosophy, which is nature is where we come from. It's what created us and it's where we belong and feel most cool. So the idea that 
that any situation where we immerse ourselves long-term in nature becomes a survival experience is counter to how I try to teach about long-term wilderness living. I love that. And that's such an important perspective change because, you know, we've been able to live in the wilderness and with nature for many years. You know, I've studied with Native American elders and they've they had that knowledge. Right. And it seemed to be lost in our generation. So it's such a key distinction. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and your journey and some of the things that you went through. You know, you did the two season on the show. I don't know if you've done more. Um, experiences like that, but I'd love for the audience to just get a, an understanding of what you were able to go through and endure and um, experience because it's incredibly powerful. And I, I said I was able to witness season six and I was absolutely blown away. I'd be like, all right, a day in, I'm out. Even if somebody was catering for me, I'm going to be gone. You know, I, I'm out of there. I'm not lasted. I don't know how many days you lasted, but I, I'm going to be out of there quick. So it was incredibly impressive. You. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had done a lot of similar things. I've been deeply ingrained in I'm, the focus of my adult life has been learning ancestral skills, which would be things like hide canning and wild foods and making bows and basketry and fiber arts and weaving. So the skills for making what we can with our own two hands and the resources in the wild world around us have been a huge focus of my life. That said, I had never done anything anywhere near as extreme as the kind of true deep wilderness immersions that I did on both seasons of Alone. And I'd never done anything anywhere near that far north. I grew up in California, Northern California in the mountains, mind you, not, not beachside, but it was really an amazing opportunity to take what I devoted my life to and really put it to the test in such an extreme way in an environment infinitely more intense and challenging than anything I'd ever experienced. And to me, it was less a endurance challenge and more a reward for a life well-lived, learning all of these skills. And to me, um, it was really about the experience and not about the competition and not about pushing myself, but an opportunity to really learn about myself and this whole new, incredibly wild place. Well, well, I love that perspective. Um, and in going through and watching season six, it was very evident that your perspective was so different than everyone else's. And there are so many instances I was watching and I would look at how you'd react to something and I would just laugh at it. Cause I'd be like, this girl is absolutely nuts. You know, she just, she's having, she's out there, you know, in the cold, how to find your, your own food. Like, so why don't you break down? Like what, how long were you out there in the first one? Where were you? Um, and just kind of give people an understanding. Cause you're basically dropped off in the middle of nowhere and you have to survive and thrive and connect with nature and integrate with your surroundings and film it all yourself. I oh, I didn't know that, that one. You had to don't think about. Oh, well, wow. you wouldn't actually be alone, right? If yeah. there was a camera crew out there, so you're actually dropped off to survive all of the things you mentioned, but also to film it so that it's possible for them to make a television show out of it. Wow. So yes, yeah, so the first time on Alone was season six, which you've seen, and that's the one that my book Never Alone is about. And that was in the just south of the Arctic Circle, about 70 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle on um, on the shores of what colonizers call Great Slave Lake. But the Lutzelke Diné name is Tunede, um, which means big water appropriately. And it's in the Northwest Territories. So it's it's pretty darn close to the Arctic Circle, but not above tree line. 
And I was there for 73 days. Wow, that's amazing. And so in that time, you've got to build your shelter, you've got to get all your food, and you've got to basically do everything. No help. Everything. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the only help is that you are dropped off with a tarp to keep your camera equipment dry. <laughs> and um, and they do medical checks on you. So they help you make sure that you don't die of starvation by sending a doctor out every so often to check out your your vitals and and assess how you're doing. But yes, it's just you out there. No one is helping you besides just doing what they can to make sure that you don't let it go too far and you don't kill yourself out there. And even in that one, uh, they took you out for medical reasons, but it was my intuition in watching the show that you could have just stayed there as long as you wanted. I, I don't know, like maybe something bad would have happened. However, something tells me you would have just figured it out. And if you needed to plant there for the rest of your life, like you would have, you know, just began to thrive more and more and more, you know, I don't think it would have degraded. So I think they just needed to be like, oh, we can't have two winners forever. So we're going to take the easy route and, you know, say it's a medical thing and make her leave. Um, but so what was the difference in the second experience? And if you want to comment on, on that, please go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, actually, it was the opposite. The first time I the first time I wasn't medically extracted, um, but I left on the day that I knew they were coming to medically extract me. So oh. the second time, the second time I would say it was more that um, that I could have gone on for much longer. I would say I was really thriving on Alone Frozen. And I absolutely, I mean, what you say is true. Had it not been a show, had there not been someone looking out for me and hauling me off if it got too intense with my body, I would have chosen to stay out there. Honestly, I don't think I would have made it through the Arctic winter. I mean, I was truly starving. I lost 50 pounds in the course of those 73 days. Um, so it was pretty intense on my body. And the spot that I was in was very resource scarce. I did not have fishable water. I did not have big game. And I had pretty low small game populations. And I went out there without snare wire because I was counting on the fishing. Um, so my trapping was incredibly challenging. It took me a solid hour at least to set each of my traps. And had I had snare wire, that would have been you know three to five minutes. So while mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I wanted to be there forever and felt like I could be, physically, it definitely probably wouldn't have worked out for me to make it all the way through a harsh Arctic winter. On my second season, Alone Frozen, that had a specific time limit. So they came and got me after I made it to the end of the time limit. But I definitely was thriving much more in that situation. I was eating every day. I was eating a couple couple good meals a day. I still lost weight, but it was definitely more of a place where I was able to physically sustain myself. And I also learned a tremendous amount from the first time that I was able to apply the second time. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Um <clears throat> distinction because maybe I'm just sitting there as a fan. I'm like, this girl will stay out there forever. She's going to have a homestead. It's going to be totally fine. Oh, You're like, I was having the time of my life. I never wanted to leave. I was loving it even as I was slowly starving. Um, <laughs> but physically, yeah, it wouldn't have lasted forever as much as I like to think that it would have. Actually, what part two of my book is called Living on Beauty because I really felt like I while I was starving, I felt like I learned to train my metabolism to something different. And I was so fed by the beauty of the place and the wildness and the remoteness. I mean, I truly felt like the only person on the face of the earth and the only person who'd ever set foot in that place. Obviously, neither of those things were exactly true. But the I don't know how to describe just the the wildness of it all sustained me 
so amazingly that I felt like I didn't need to eat. I felt like I had turned into a whole different kind of creature. Um, so yeah, so your observations were true, but if you break <laughs> it down to what was actually happening with me physically, not, not as true, but I was loving it regardless. Yeah, well, you definitely had the positive attitude going through. And one of the things that you touch on, and you did it a little bit already, is like the different outlook of like conquering the elements, right? So can you speak about that? Like, how do you see integrating into these new spaces? Or if somebody wants to get out into nature, like, how do you frame that? Yeah, great question. So I saw myself as both a visitor to this place, but also as someone who was really coming to join the wild community there. And that was the intention. I started by introducing myself to the lake and asking it to support me. I was making offerings. Every time I got game, I was making a, an offering to the ancestors before I ate myself. Every time I had to cut a tree for the shelter, I asked the tree and sometimes it said yes and sometimes it said no. And I didn't cut a tree that gave me a no. I felt like it was really important for me to be good to my word to practice what I preach and to be there in a way where I was giving back as much as I was taking. And I feel like the natural world recognized that in me. And I felt really cradled and given to, even as, you know, we got insane Arctic storms that froze the lake a foot deep in the course of 72 hours. And even as, you know, it, it got down to well below 25 below zero. Um, so I think that we all experience challenges in our life, but it's the attitude that we bring to them and whether we approach those in an oh, poor me or in a what can I learn from this to do better next time framework that makes all the difference. And I absolutely had that out there. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so important. And in your book, you talk a little bit about almost going to starvation. And I remember uh, learning about fasting and I learned that many people, uh, basically, if you're an average person, you could go about 21 days without food. And I thought, holy smokes, I thought <laughs> maybe 10, like 21, just basically you can do that. Now in that experience, like what did that experience teach you? Um, did it change you in it in any way? Um, how did you feel about that? Cause I know a few people that have done 21 days plus, and they all say it was a very transformative experience. And I know yours was a little bit forced, um, but I'm curious what that experience like was like for you. Yeah, wonderful question. You know, I was never a person who had done long-term fasting before going out on a loan. I did intermittent fasting, which is only eating for certain parts of the day or short-term fasts. And I think that that did prepare me metabolically. And I think that I think there's a reason why giving something up and often fasting is a major part of most world religions. There is something incredibly transcendental about it. And the things that we learn about ourselves when we are, when we either choose or are in a circumstance where we go without something that we feel that we need and we approach that edge of what we think we, we can't do without, and then we find that we can, there's something incredibly empowering about that. So if you had asked me ahead of going out into the Arctic by myself to live as long as I could, how I would do with long-term hunger, I wouldn't have said that I was particularly resilient against long-term hunger. But being out there, I was so in love with everything about the place, the experience, the environment, that 
that's the hunger seemed nominal. I mean, it was rough. It was uncomfortable. I was aware of it all the time. And there were times when it was really hard on my body. And then times when I kind of rose above it. So it's not to say that it was easy, but it was a gift. I mean, it was a tremendous gift to learn what's really important and what really feeds me most. And while there are certainly, you know, some true physical limitations on our bodies. When we're in extreme situations, we often find that those limits are so different than we would have thought going in. And there's just nothing as transformative as experiencing that. Yeah. And I think for people who want to fast or experience with a challenging situation, that's that's the thing is we love comfort, right? So you look at something kind of simple, like Wim Hof cold training. He popularized that. It's like you go out in cold and it's it's quick, but then immediately get back to comfort, right? So I was able to do that. I <laughs> tested it for 30 days and, you know, and then so training for me with the Shaolin monks, they force you in an uncomfortable position. And I share the experience. It's like having the most ruthless personal trainers. I don't think I could have pushed myself to do the things that they kind of made me do so far beyond what I'm capable of. And the beautiful thing is when you put yourself in those experiences, you realize that you're capable of so much more. You learn more about yourself. You learn more about, um, I think, spirituality and God and, and the interconnectedness of all things. And when you were speaking there about the food, I was reminded of uh, an interview I did with my friend Sewa, who is a Native American woman, and she did a vision quest. And you basically have to go on the, the mountain there, and there's no food or water or something for, for four days. And she had a guide with her, and she tells this very powerful story about being thirsty. You know, it was the middle of summer, and it's very, very hot, and she has no water. You have nothing. And, and, um, her guide basically told her to talk to the earth, talk to your mom. <laughs> and so, so she, she lied down and she found this cool patch and she said, mama, I'm thirsty. And she goes, she felt her whole body get satiated. And I find that a mm. very compelling story to really connect with everything around us. And there's a book, uh, that's called Jesus and the Essenes. And it says there's four ways to know God, um, spiritual teacher, reading, meditation and the other one is nature and you know in going out there and spending such a long duration of time in nature did that grow your spiritual uh connection with god in any way did it change some of the views you had or what was that like for you yeah 100 percent. i mean it was amazing i would say so i'm not a person who was raised in any religion or with a christian god but i have always been someone who considers myself spiritual and to who seeks that type of connection from the natural world and in my life and being out long term in such an incredible pristine place where my life 100% depended on my own capacity and what that place had to give me it was as if everything that i had ever considered spiritual before had just been a mental exercise it wasn't deeply visceral like i have made ancestor offerings regularly at different times in my life. But when I made an ancestor offering out there, I heard the ancestors whispering their thanks to me. And I don't mean literally like I heard the sound in my ear, but like the deep visceral sense of feeling seen and held and thanked and then being given to in return was so profound. I had so many experiences and I, I go into a lot of them and not all of them in the book where I literally 
went out and realized that I'd been on the land for a while and I'd been harvesting some food and I'd been cutting some plants without giving an offering in return. And the reason that this was brought up to me is I lost something. I lost the, the, the earpiece for listening to the audio of the camera and I lost my bra. Like I'd pulled my bra off last thing before going to bed and then in the morning I couldn't find it. And I've always had this experience that, okay, if I'm losing things consistently, maybe it's because I'm not giving enough and the the world or the fairies or God or whatever your belief might be is, is taking an offering, right? So you need to give something in order to not have, not have offerings taken <laughs> um, that aren't of your choosing. And so I, I offered up something from one of my pieces of clothing and within an hour of that offering, I found a needle a piece of metal that was like a needle shaped that was so easy to turn into a needle so that I actually had this thing that I needed to repair all of my clothing. And I went out with not all of my clothing complete because I chose to hand make all of my clothes. I was incredibly ambitious and I didn't have everything finished. So a needle was like the thing that I needed most in the world and that I had no way to make for myself out there. And it just showed up at eye level, sticking out of my tarp. Had it showed up anywhere else, I would have missed it, right? But it happened to show up right there, right after I made this offering. So there were so many things when I was out there that were like a direct answer to whatever my question or prayer or ask had been in ways that made it completely undeniable that I was seen and wanted there and given to in profound ways. Well, that's a beautiful story. And it sounds like you had the profound difference between you know the mental exercise of something and the experience right it's like it's i could describe my experience with the shaolin monks or trekking mount everest and almost dying or you could be in it and it change is a there's no way that you can articulate the words to create the feeling it's like it goes from uh thinking to knowing and they're two different worlds and i'm curious mm -hmm. Uh, some people choose to do meditation retreats, darkroom retreats, uh, you know, a, a weekend away. Did you have any other kind of spiritual profound, um, yeah, experiences that happen? Because that one right there is interesting, that inner feel feeling that something is there, you know, or like, you know, that you're actually communicating, like everything becomes more alive, more interconnected. And I've had those experiences and they're very beautiful. And then I have to try to remember each and every day that it's always there. Um, but those glimpses right. and those deep immersions are so beautiful and they're so profound. Yeah, I, I talk about that at length in the in the last section of my book, because Coming home was, people always ask me, what was the hard, like, that looked so hard. What was the hardest thing? And I'm like, you know, the hardest part was having to leave, was having <laughs> to come home. Because out there, I mean, you asked, did I have any other experiences like that? Like, so many, all the time, all the time. My whole world was populated with incredible experiences like that. And I, and I explain a lot of them in the book, but there's no way to write about all of them. On Alone Frozen, I would have it was often the rocks that were given to me when I was building my shelter. That environment was so incredibly challenging that I didn't even have enough wood to build with. I had to build with, with layers of sphagnum moss and lichen and rocks. And I would picture, okay, I need a rock. Like I'm building my hearth in order for my hearth to work. I need a rock like this and picture the dimensions and then go out looking on the land. And I would find that rock. It was so direct and like the first night after launch i got there and it was rough it was a far harder environment and that was the whole premise of alone frozen was taking some of the top 
outperforming, you know, folks who had been on the show before and put them in the hardest situation yet. And it was brutally hard more than any of us were prepared for. But the very first night I woke up in the middle of the night to pee and I walked out of my shelter to incredible Northern lights all around me. And it just felt like it was, it was the place, you know, the spirits, the ancestors, whoever you, you believe it was talking, but it felt very profoundly like it's going to be okay. You've got this and, and we want you here and we've got your back. So, so many experiences like that. And as you say, you have those so deeply when you're in those incredible, intense, extreme situations. And then the challenge is coming back to the mundane life and maintaining that same connection, that same sense of knowing when all of a sudden we're bombarded with all of this stimulation that's distracting us from what we know is true in our core. And it's just so much easier to feel that out in nature than it is in modern society. Yeah, absolutely. And when I watched season six, you had a very obvious gratitude. You know, some people are like, they'll do the gratitude, but you can tell that they're not really in it. And that could be myself included when I'm aware, like, (laughs) oh, I should be grateful right now. I'm going about my day. And, you know, I say I'm grateful for something, but I don't feel it. But with you, it's like this woman is getting run through the mill and she's actually super grateful. Like she, yeah, you didn't want to leave. And so how how do you do that? Was that the same uh, in in the Arctic one where you're you're probably cold and hungry and you know dying of starvation? You're like, oh man, I'm so grateful. This is amazing. How do you how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Which I wish I could answer succinctly. Um, it's absolutely a practice that I've had to work hard for. And I write a lot about my background in my book, but you know, I was, I'm an only child raised by a single mom. When I was seven years old, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. You know, um, that was terrifying. I've been through it for sure in life. And you, you don't have control over your external circumstances, right? The only thing you have control over is how you respond to them. And I would say that I didn't respond enormously well in my early life. And I think it's a lot harder when when you're a kid, but I was kind of a sad and lonely kid a lot. You know, I spent a lot of time by myself. I had a lot of fear. I was I was small for my age. I was socially awkward being an only child. You know, I really had to, um, I really experienced isolation and fear and lack. And I had to work hard. And I would say that that transformation happened in my in my 30s, really looking at my life and recognizing that how I chose to interact with all of the situations before me was up to me and that life was a tremendous gift and I needed to start making better choices, but also I needed to really look at what I had rather than focusing on what I didn't and what was hard. And so I don't think that there's an easy answer to how do you do that? But it is definitely something that I have intentionally worked at for decades of my life. And that served me incredibly well out there. All of us were experiencing the same brutal conditions. And I think you're right that the way I experienced those was really different based on my attitude. And in every challenge, looking for something to be grateful for. Okay, maybe there's an insane storm that means I can, that, that means, you know, I'm 
potentially battling frostbite and that I can't get out and get to resources, but hey, it's going to freeze the lake. And that means I can get out to deeper water and I can get to fish, you know, and then it turns out that the lake froze too hard and I wasn't able to do that. But I had <laughs> the most amazing evening of my entire life out on the frozen lake in this incredible sunset. So there's always some gift in every challenge. And when we build a habit of looking for and appreciating those, rather than on focusing on what we're not getting, then we're going to do better in everything in life. I love that. That's a really beautiful way to articulate that. And I'm reminded of an interview I did with Travis Ortmeyer, who is a former strongman, and he was competing in strongman, one of the best in the world, and then got addicted to drugs and it ruined his whole life. And he was basically at the pit at the bottom. He lost everything. And what he shared was the very beginning of his road to recovery was gratitude. And the first thing that he was grateful for was his feet. (laughs) He's like, Oh, I have my feet. I can walk. I can walk out of this terrible situation and room that I'm in, you know? And so that little light there, that little piece of gratitude was the thing that was able to propel him out from his own self-created hell into, you know, another thriving life where he's doing very, very well. And so it's, it's so important that, we understand the power of gratitude and I really like how you shared it was a practice and you had to work at it. And it's like, you're training yourself to find the gifts and the challenges because when we're naturally seeking comfort and ease, and especially now with new generations where everything's being handed to you, right? When things get challenged, you know, you're in a challenging situation, you kind of crumble immediately. So training yourself to find the gift in, in adversity and challenges is a, is a very, uh, important life lesson that we can all use. And I'm curious with your two experiences, did you have one or two top big lessons that you learned about yourself or about life? And then if you did, how do you maintain them in the world where it's very different than being secluded? Um, you know, and it, there's a saying that they say, um, like, the monk in the mountains, you know, it's, it's harder to be uh, in the city than the monk in the mountain. You got to, you got to get off the, the enlightenment pedestal or whatever. And then you come down into the city and you got to deal with all that stuff. You know, you got to bring it down into the world. And I'm curious if you feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredibly challenging. As you say, it's easy to find God when you're a monk in the mountains and it's a lot harder when you're, you know, stuck in traffic for three hours because there's a terrible accident in front of you. Um, So Yes, I had profoundly transformative experiences both times on alone. And one of the things that I really brought back with me was just, you know, recognizing, as you said, we are the most entitled people that have ever lived on the planet. We have anything we want at the touch of a button, any information, we can get any goods ordered from anywhere around the world, we can dial in the climate we want. So we have this idea that we just get comfort, we get food, we get shelter. But when you're out in a place where you absolutely do not get anything without a lot of hard work, it changes your perspective forever. And I would say that food is one of the biggest things. And, you know, our culture has a really unhealthy relationship with food, certainly, I think that's, you know, pretty, pretty well documented. Um, But even the way we think about calories and metabolism, like it's so crazy to me that people are always bummed about having a slow metabolism because it makes it easier to put on weight. But that is such a survival advantage. Are you kidding me? Like to go out into the wilderness and not need as much food. (laughs) That is freaking amazing. So like everything about 
what we think about as modern humans is turned on its head when you're actually in the wilderness living off what you can get and what you have the capacity to make with your own hands and recognizing that we are the first generation that did not have to face famine regularly, right? I mean, not the first generation, but the last couple hundred years, say, um, the, the first era that didn't look at famine as a regular part of life. So just gratitude for the fact that you have food to eat every day is profound. And even though, you know, I eat every day when I get to, the knowledge of what it is to not have that, to not be able to take that for granted and to work so hard for it, that will never leave me now. And that's one of the most profound things. It's such a simple thing that almost nobody ever thinks about. And in fact, most people think about how can I manage to eat less rather than how can I get enough food to not die tomorrow? You know, like touching that edge. I mean, truly, like I was to the point where I was starting to digest my own organs, you know, like on the end, the edge of serious long-term damage or death from starvation. And that changes you physiologically for sure, but it changes you profoundly, mentally, emotionally, um, so you just you just can't take things for granted again when you've lived without long term, you know, a weekend camping trip, a 20 day fast, like all of those things are profound. But we're talking like long term months without those things that it it rewires you. So um, so that's one thing that's that's really <laughs> profound. But also um, the. The sense of being a part of a wild, intact place, being part of a wild ecosystem and all of the critters and plants and stones and the, you know, the sea and the lake and um, actually feeling like a part of and like I belonged and that I was seen and welcomed in a wild place was, um, was very transformative. It's something that I've wanted my whole life that I've looked for with lots of backpacking trips and camping trips and stone age expeditions. You know, I had this idea that if I let go of all modern things and went into the woods with all, you know, stone knives and buckskin and felt and nothing that didn't come from the earth, that it would somehow change me profoundly. It never did nowhere near as much as going out into the wilderness long term, even though I brought some modern gear with me, but actually surrendering body and soul, like truly laying myself on the altar of wildness and saying, it's up to you, whether I live or die, I am here with my whole heart and I'm going to bring everything I've got to it, but I don't have control over what happens in this situation. You do. The greater than me is what's in charge. And that, that shifted me in ways that I've never achieved even through decades of trying in other ways. Wow. Well, those are profound stories. I'm curious, um, how many days did you go without food? And then the question I have about that is what made you keep going? Like, did you not have the fear of death? Were you not concerned about that? Like, what was your mindset? Because most people, you know, there's <laughs> a hilarious joke on one, one show. I can't remember. He goes, you know, this, is, he says like, this is something serious. You're not uh, two hours into a 14 day juice cleanse or something where like, you know, it's so easy to go and get the food, right? It's like, oh, now I'm hungry or I've made it 10 days. I got to eat or, you know, whatever the case is. Now you, you have a choice to pull the trigger and get out, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that. Yeah. So, you know, you're starving, you're not getting food. So what's going through your mind to be like, I'm just going to push through this. It's okay. 
Yeah. So your first question was, how long did I go without food? And that's hard to answer because I generally had some amount of food, but sometimes that looked like, you know, a handful of calorie of cranberries that had maybe 50 calories. So I had something, even if it was just tea, spruce needle tea or chaga tea, something to put into my belly. But if we talk about how many days I went without enough calories, I mean, I never had as many calories as I was burning in a day. And on season six, I got my first game on day 14, which was a grouse. I actually got two, two animals in one day. They only showed one on the show, but I shot a squirrel and then a grouse right afterwards with my bow. So that was day 14. So I went two full weeks with nothing but little teeny pinches of pemmican and handfuls of berries. Um, and then I finished those squirrels, squirrel, the squirrel and grouse, and I didn't get any more game until day 21. So it was basically day 21 when I started trapping that I started getting food more consistently. So you could kind of say three full weeks with very, very, very minimal food. And then after that, I was getting maybe a quarter of the calories that I actually needed to subsist on any given day, most often less than that, but some days as much as a quarter of the calories that I needed. So a teeny percentage of what my body actually needed. And I would say in 73 days in the Arctic, I probably got the amount of food that my body needed, probably two out of 73 days, if that. And those were days that I had set aside as feast days. Like I did a, <laughs> an ancestor feast for Halloween where I saved up food for a while. Um, and then, and then feasted on on Samhain, which is a traditional Celtic ceremony day for honoring honoring our ancestors and the dead. And um, so it felt important to me to to have a feast for that day. So yeah, mostly starving, but having something to put in. On season, on the frozen season, alone frozen, I didn't eat really at all for the first three or four days because I was working so hard to get my shelter because a crazy storm hit right away and shelter was so much more important than food. But then from then on, I was eating at least once a day, but more often two meals a day. Also, not really enough calories most of those days, but I would say out of 50 days, I probably had like 10 or 12 days where I ate enough calories. Um, and that was when I was trapping in addition to eating mussels and seaweed and berries. But the, the real issue out there is the lack of fat. I don't want to cut you off, but you, your mic has started to scratch a little bit on oh. your, yeah, if you hold it there, that way Thank you, you. Get, yeah. yeah, that sound better. Um, okay. Yeah. So the only thing I wanted to share on that was the thing that people need to keep in mind is that a lot of time you're out, you're walking, you're, you're using, you know, I don't know if it'd be interesting to have a Fitbit on you guys, but to see how many steps you guys <laughs> are doing a day and how much energy you're using. And so you're not nearly getting enough food to sustain your body over a long duration of time. And then I'd love for you to just speak a little bit about the second part of it is like, what was the mindset? Like, did you just want to push yourself far? Like, did you have like a trust in yourself, a trust in the process? Did you want to win so bad? Like, and I don't think it was that. I think it was a personal, uh, spiritual type of spirit, uh, uh, experience for yourself. But I'm just curious what, what kept you going when you basically didn't have enough to eat for so long? Yeah. What kept me going was wanting to be there so much. I mean, I was in love with the place and it was really different for me 
the first season I did season six versus Alone Frozen, because that was much less true the second time. I still appreciated it, but I wasn't profoundly in love with it in the same way. I just didn't have the same kind of connection to place the second time. But part of what kept me going was the idea that I could do something about it, that my luck would change, that, you know, the ice would come and I'd be able to get out onto the ice and and ice fish, that I, my trap line would suddenly become successful, that maybe I would be able to get that moose. On Frozen, I was trapping and I was trapping both seasons, but putting more energy towards it on the Frozen season. Well, I wouldn't say that. I had more capacity to on the Frozen season because I had snare wire. But every day, the idea that I might get game in my trap line. That was huge. And those kinds of rewards where you go a long time without, it's the same thing that gets people attached to gambling, right? The idea that you never know, it's unpredictable, and you may or may not win at any time. But when you do, it is the most amazing thing in the world. And that's probably, I don't really, I don't gamble. So that's probably less true of gambling. But when you're starving and you get food, it is the most incredible thing you will ever experience in your entire life like food will never ever ever taste as amazing as it did when I was starving long term in the wilderness so it's the idea that that I will never have such an opportunity for such an incredible deep immersion with safety parameters like I had there like I did have the capacity to call people in should I get in a really difficult situation and that wouldn't be true if I just hiked out into the wilderness on my own in my normal life um so yeah so many things kept me going the amazingness of the experience the love of place the idea that I could bring it around and how incredible it was when I did get something after so long without anything well, I love that. And I would love your opinion on this because it did say in some of the the press notes that I got that you speak a little bit about, I think you're a vegetarian before, and then you flipped that. Is that true? I was vegetarian early like in life. Er, early I hadn't been li- vegetarian for years. Yeah, early in life. And I'm just curious, like, uh, because people are really, we don't talk about it too much in this podcast, but, uh, you know, I've had, but I'd just be curious your take on it. Cause I did go vegetarian for a bit where in my main reason that I didn't want to harm animals. And now it was my time with my native American teachers that actually flipped my thinking around that. And I'm just curious, did this experience change that or what, what's your message or a reasoning for that transition? Yeah, I was I was vegan for years before I started getting into primitive skills. And it wasn't that I didn't love meat. I've always been a carnivore at heart. And it wasn't that I felt that it was wrong to eat animals, but I was horrified at the industrial, you know, agricultural complex and the way animals are treated in our culture and how actually truly unhealthy most of the meat that we eat from animals that are in forced confinement and eating diets that they were never intended to eat. So that's why I chose to stop eating meat. And then it was recognizing that I could eat roadkill, that this was an animal that was dead anyway, and going to waste and was healthy wild food that had been living a beautiful wild life up until getting hit, and that I could make use of that. That's what changed things for me. So that shift happened when I was in in my early 20s. I think I, I was 19 when I picked up my first roadkilled animal and had been vegan for a couple of years before that. So it wasn't my time on alone that shifted that for me, but it was definitely true that my connection to the animals, I, and for I've processed a lot of roadkill in my life, and I've also raised and slaughtered my own animals on, on a homestead. Uh, so 
it's one thing, I think, choosing to eat meat in responsible ways and being engaged with the animals you, you eat and making sure that they have the best possible life. And I think that's really important to do. But it's a whole different thing being living on wild land as a wild animal does, where whether or not you wake up the next morning has to do with how much food you get the day before and whether or not you're successful hunting. And I think we have this idea in our culture that you have to not love animals or not feel deeply connected to animals in order to eat meat. And I think that nothing could be further from the truth. And when we're dependent on animals for our life, which most modern people aren't, right? You're gonna live whether you eat a tofu burger or a hamburger most days. But out there, you can really feel what animal food does for your body, that the handfuls of berries are not freaking doing, right? So 100%, you need those animals. And when they choose to give themselves to you, it is the most profound, profoundly connective and loving act. I mean, I've never loved an animal more than a snowshoe hare that I found in my trap, right? Because I freaking need it. And there is nothing to me more intimate and respectful and connective than processing an animal and seeing seeing what it looks like inside and understanding the way it lives its life based on its stomach contests, contents and its sense organs, like seeing the way the ear bone in a rabbit is a denser bone than anywhere else in its entire body, you understand how important the sense of hearing is to a snowshoe hare, right? So you come to know something so deeply, so intimately, and in such a deeply connected way that I think that it's a, a profound part of what it is to be an animal and be a human to harvest your own meat from the wild. And while I don't always do that in my normal life. It's certainly something that I strive for and something that I'm an advocate of after, you know, being in the PETA and very against hunting as a young woman because I loved nature so much. It's been a complete turnaround and it just feels really deeply right in, in my body. And that isn't true for everybody. And I respect that. You know, I totally respect the choice to not eat animals from a place of love and connection, but I think that we can have a profound love and connection for animals, even if we choose to kill them and eat them. I appreciate that very thoughtful answer. In my life, I've changed my perspective on that thing a few times. And now I'm at the point where I'm a father and all I really want is a small homestead. And it, and it makes sense to me that, you know, we should have um, the ability to raise our own food, our own gardens. And we don't have that. There should be an abundance everywhere. And when you did this um, and you talked about it at the beginning, like nature is abundant. You got, you got stuck in the most intense places with nothing. However, nature in itself is abundant. An apple can grow a whole apple tree. You know what I mean? And like everything really spawns off and it, and it grows fractally. So there is enough for everyone. And if everybody has these basic understandings, you know, some guys got cucumbers and you share your tomatoes and we're all kind of working, uh, you know, together. And this opportunity is right there. And what's happened over the years that we've become, we've lost this knowledge, we've stopped doing it. And then there's also been a, a little bit of a destruction of the small farm in Canada. Canada and I'm sure in the States as well, which is which very unfortunate. And it'd be nice to get some of those skills back, some of that understanding back because where our food comes from, because it's important. As you said, it's the factory farming and all that stuff that's super disgusting and horrible. And we can really change that by reintroducing it back into our rural areas and, and the cities is obviously a little bit tougher, um, but that's 
something that is within our capabilities. And I love, um, shoot, what's his name? He does food forest freedom, just Google food forest freedom. And it's such a beautiful and simple idea. And I'm not a big fan of the government, um, never have been, but my thought is like, you know, if they were trying to help us, why are not all trees, you know, apple trees and, and, you know, like the whole inner city could be all trees and all gardens that provide for everybody. It is available right now. We know, you know, go get the best gardeners, the farmers that are outside your city, right. Ask them how to do it. And then all of a sudden like, holy smokes, like there's fresh food for everyone. Um, but it is a big business. It's a huge thing. And I want to go that way. Um, what I'd like to talk about is, you know, with your experiences, these very profound experiences, if someone's listening to this and they, they'd like a glimpse of it, they're like, it sounds amazing. I would love that experience. And obviously I can't do it because I don't have the skills, um, but I, I love that idea. How, how might they be able to take one of these lessons and integrate it in their own life, whether it's a weekend camping or whether they, they start learning some skills, how could they uh, begin to experience a little bit of what you did and the lessons that you learned? Yeah, wonderful question. So a big part of my work is empowering people with those skills, whatever that looks like. I, I have all kinds of folks who are doing homesteading and, and tanning hides and doing the complete back to the land who I teach and who are part of my, my online community and my classes, but also people in cities who are just dipping their toes in and finding profound changes just through that little bit of empowerment. So part of why I wrote my book, Never Alone, was to give people some way to vicariously experience some of what I got out of the depth of connection. But the point of giving them that experience isn't just to show them what is possible and then say, oh, but sorry, you'll never have that. It's to inspire them to want to go out and get that for themselves. So some of the ways that I encourage people to find that connection and start building the practices that, that shift your life gradually are ways to start connecting with whatever nature is available to you. And for most people, some of the things that are easiest to connect to are plants and birds, because there are peregrine falcons nesting on skyscrapers in New York City and San Francisco, right? Birds have wings, so they get everywhere. So there's no environment on earth where there aren't birds. So starting to pay attention to the bird song listening to the voices of the birds and see if you can tell when a bird is happy and feeling good and singing its morning song versus when it's in distress and something is going wrong. And like, can you tune your nervous system to hear those subtle messages that all of your ancestors knew how to tune into, right? Because when we were living, living on the plains with saber-toothed tigers and giant ground sloths and, you know, all kinds of things. When the birds stopped singing, if you weren't paying attention, you were going to get eaten by that saber-toothed tiger, right? So we have built into our nervous system the capacity to do that. And birds are a really wonderful way to just open that window and start to remember some of those ancestral human skills and capacities. And then another thing is plants, because again, they are everywhere. There are edible and medicinal greens growing up through the sidewalk cracks in every city in, in North America. And if you start to learn what some of those common ones are, then you, you can add a little bit of wild into your diet. You can start to recognize the similarities between different plants and see, oh, these are related to one another and recognize plant families and start to 
find ways to turn that smear of green into individuals that you recognize and know and feel connected to. So those are two really easy ways to make a profound difference relatively quickly. So a lot of the work that I do is teaching about plants and birds. I have online courses. I have a course called Connection is a Survival Skill that's about building those practices we talked about earlier finding ways to have gratitude practices built into your everyday life, finding ways to look for the silver lining in that dark cloud, um, giving, giving skills for starting a nature journal. So you start to pay attention to the plants and how they change throughout the seasons. So I try to find ways to make things accessible to all people wherever they are. And then definitely what feeds me most is things like the wilderness immersion skills, how to find food and water and build shelter when you go out. So there's there's something for everybody, whatever your skill, there's a way for you to be met. And there's lots of people offering similar things as well. But I do think that it's important to find someone to learn from who comes at it from that more connective place instead of that fear-based place, because that that fear-based mentality can spiral. And then we find that we are less empowered and more fearful, even as we gain skills, if we don't do it from that mindset of, this is my birthright as a human and I came from nature and it's where I belong. Right. Absolutely. I love that. And I'd be curious your, your perspective on this idea. Uh, as a martial artist, as I've traveled the world, I feel more safe and more secure knowing that I can take care of myself. Like I'm not concerned too much. You know, I obviously can get into a bad situation and easily could get my butt kicked with a bunch of different people and whatever the case is, if there's a gang or whatever. However, just having the capacity to protect myself has given me a lot of courage and a lot of different situations to just experience whatever I want without fear. I'd imagine yeah. being able to survive anywhere, almost any time on the earth would give you this feeling of security where, where a lot of people would be like, oh my gosh, what am I going to eat? Or what, what am I going to do if this terrible thing happens? What am I going to do if this happens? What about, you know what I mean? Just the fact that you're, oh, well, the economy's crashed and you know uh, everything's shut down. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to go over to this bush here. I'm going to build a little house. I'm going to you know bugger off for a bit as these idiots figure things out. Um, does it make you feel more secure and less um, afraid of what's going on in, in the world that constantly is portraying chaos and destruction and everything else? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, it was really interesting that my first season of Alone was aired on Netflix the summer of 2020 when all the world was freaking out about the pandemic. And I had a former student who had done a course with me, I think in 2011, reach out to me and say, well, Nia, you know, that, that course, I think it was a four month live-in immersion that she did with me in all kinds of skills like we're talking about today. She said, having done that course with you, Onia, like everyone around me is freaking out and I'm not, I'm not particularly scared. I feel like I've got this. And that was the moment that I started teaching online, actually, because up until then, I had only done in-person courses. And all of a sudden, I realized, okay, I might not be a technology person, but all of a sudden, the world recognizes that they don't have these skills and that they need them. You know, it's amazing how we feel like all we need is a credit card in today's modern world. And we got this, we got survival. No, you freaking don't. Like when people talk about like leaving the wilderness, to come back to the real world. I'm like, no, no, the world that we live in, that's the fabrication. The idea that we can just buy whatever we want any minute. 
no, 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 that is not security, right? So yeah, having the hard skills to actually support your needs, and even just knowing what your needs are, understanding the difference between needs and wants, that's a huge thing that a lot of modern humans haven't really got dialed. And huge crises, you know, global crises, or economy downturns, or what have you, those are the things that really reveal the difference between needs and wants. And once you have the ability to meet your basic needs, you're so much more resilient, whatever the situation may be, you know, car crash, you know, global pandemic, whatever it might be. Yeah, it makes you feel like you're it makes the world seem like a safer and more beneficent place if you know that you can take care of yourself. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And then you couple that idea with the gratitude practice you have, you know, and saying, hey, you know, I'm not dependent on this artificial world. And going out in the wilderness, when you come back to a city, you can see how artificial it is. And I've done enough traveling and enough camping and enough wilderness experiences to know that the city is the place that I don't really want to be. Sometimes uh, through necessity, I need to be in a city for a certain amount of time. However, when you're removed from it, and you observe it from a different space, you realize like, this is the unnatural world. This is the thing that, you know, is, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not integrating into everything else. And so if you're there and you have these, you know, skills of gratitude and this other understanding, it's not going to be as disheartening when that system is shaky and it's a shaky system because it's, for a, a, a myriad of reasons that I've covered on this podcast, a very shaky system that shouldn't be trusted <laughs> um, and always coming back to your own power. And that own power is the connection with God or nature, however you want to describe that. But then you see how nature takes care of you with this understanding of who you are um, and there are and, and what you're capable of and knowing that there's everything there for you. Um, there's this Bible quote that I like, and I wouldn't, I'd say I enjoy some of the, practices of Christianity. And I like reading the Bible for what it is. Um, but I, I wouldn't say I'm a religious person, but I think that looking at that book and reading some of the verses are so profound. And one of them I liked when I, I was starting to look at more survival stuff because like, Oh God, how bad is this going to get? Right. So I buy a crappy tent and a knife. Like I'm going to survive anywhere. You know, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm toast. You know what I mean? I know that. Um, but it says in the, in the Bible, like, um, you know, you look at the birds and the bees and the flower and, and all the animals, like they're taken care of. Don't you think, that your creator would take care of you? Don't you think that if all of nature is working harmoniously, that you couldn't integrate into that as well and be a fully functioning, thriving part of that? And I feel like because our society is so sick and disconnected in so many ways, whether it's you know what we want to do for greed or materialism or what we think is cool and popular, being so disconnected on the screens and not just sitting in nature and and, and enjoying uh, you know the beauty all around us that you fully immerse yourself in to see like the profoundness of a flower or a tree or God's creation essentially is like no no let me put this VR set on that's where that's where it's at you know what I mean full disconnection and no wonder if you, people feel lost and and alone and sad and depressed and anxious because they fully lost this connection so I kind of went off in a tangent I don't know if you want to comment on that it, it left a question mark so I'd love for you to just say something about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah absolutely I mean I think it's it's so interesting how as humans, we tend to see this line drawn between ourselves and nature and ourselves and other wild creatures. It's like, well, what do you think we were doing for the past 100,000 years? You know, like, th that is, we were thriving in nature 100%. And that is what our 
bodies were shaped by and built for. Everything in our evolution was so that we could thrive in wild places and have everything we need. And how strange is it that we have totally forgotten that in just a couple hundred years, you know, that that is literally what we were built for and we have the capacity for. And that's part of why I am so devoted to my work because I do feel that that degree to which we feel disconnected and separate is responsible for all of the ills of modern society. I mean, look at our incredibly unhealthy, unhappy, over-medicated society. And that stems from that, that deep disconnect, I believe, because when everything in your body and your evolution is geared towards one thing and you shut yourself off, from that one thing, how are you going to not feel like something is missing, right? And no matter how many Teslas you buy or fancy sunglasses or, you know, total gym workout systems or how many books you read or whatever it is that you try to do to fill all of those gaps, nothing's going to do it until you actually let your DNA express itself for what it was made to do. And that might be as simple as going for a hike once a week and turning your damn phone off and not having a podcast in your ear, not that, that people shouldn't listen to this podcast, which of course they could. <laughs> Thank you. But, but when you're out in nature, can you do it with no stimulation besides nature? And what does that do for your animal body to actually have the capacity to use what its DNA was created for? And, and as you said, that feeling of connection versus isolation, that's why I called my book Never Alone. I mean, demonstrably, my experience was on a show called Alone. So what <laughs> is different about the way I did it where I didn't ever feel alone out there, right? That's, that's what we need to, to help us feel better as, as humans on the planet, that connection with ourselves, with the natural world around us, with one another, with everything in our lives to be reminded of connection rather than reminded of isolation. Absolutely. Very beautifully said. Well, this has been a treat. I appreciate you and your time. Is there anything that you wish that we had talked about or that you want to leave the listeners with before we close the show? Great question. Uh, the one thing that I would love to leave your listeners with is just the idea, something that I'd certainly encounter a lot with my achievements on the Alone Show is people putting me on a pedestal like, oh, you did this amazing thing and I could never do that. And part of my whole message is, yeah, you freaking can. You don't know that you could do it because you haven't ever been pushed that hard. But believing in ourselves and believing in our capacity, regardless of whether we get dropped by helicopter into a really intense wilderness or not, you know, recognizing our own capacity and building our lives in a way that allow us to express that capacity, that is going to be really life-changing. And that's the gift that I would like to give everyone, everyone who listens to this podcast, know that you're just as capable. It's just a matter of choosing to and giving yourself uh, some basic skills and practices that help you get there. Amazing. And if people want to get the book and they want to check out your courses and they want to stay in touch, where should they go? What are you doing? What are you working on? I know you have courses, you have books. What's happening over there? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can find you can find all of my offerings through one of my two websites, buckskinrevolution.com is focused on my ancestral skills teachings. Um, and then woniatibo.com has all of the information about the book about my book tour, about online classes. So either either of those feed each other. But woniatibo.com is going to give you links to order the book and potentially come and see me when I'm traveling around this summer doing, doing readings and signings with the book and also ways that you can plug in and start to build your own skill set. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for writing the book. And uh, yeah, just have a beautiful day. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Matt. You too. All right. See you guys. Thanks for watching. Peace. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely exceptional Wonia Tebow. I hope that you enjoyed this show, that it brought value and insight to your life. If you want to become a member, just head over to mattbelair.com and you can do so for free or by donation. If you have any questions or suggestions, just hit me up at matt at zenathlete.com. And for those of you guys who've been listening for a long time and you're staying up to date for the show, you may notice there's been a little bit of a pause and this is because I have moved. Uh, my family baby number two is almost here and there's a lot of preparation and i am going to be doing some other work that is going to um, not allow me to do as many podcasts but once i get it sorted out we'll be uh, doing the goal here is a show a week at least so hopefully i'll be able to wrap that up and sort that out as quickly as possible but that is the reason for the delay so if you want to stay up to date uh, just go over to telegram join the community there or join the email list so that's it thank you guys so much for listening i appreciate you let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we close the show wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with joy, peace, contentment, faith, courage, inspiration, and get ready to enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.